invite you to take your Bibles today as we look at Revelation chapter 8 and Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 8 and Revelation chapter 9. The book of Revelation is designed to be an immersive book. It's meant to pull you in. Apocalyptic literature, that's what Revelation is, sends a message. And it sends a message through emotional imagery and symbolism. Revelation attempts to reach your heart through emotion and imagination. So you can't just read this book. You have to dream this book. You have to feel this book. It reminds me of an an amusement ride I experienced this last year. It it wasn't a roller coaster. It was the kind of ride, I'll describe it to you, where it's a movie scene and you're locked in a cart and it's meant to be really sensory. And by that, I mean you move around. How many of you know what I'm talking about, this kind of ride? And in front of you is this massive screen, right? And there's sights and sounds and the, and the cart is shaking and the screen before you is making you feel like you're flying around mountains. Now, you know, I'm not flying, I'm not flying, I'm not flying. But everything about the experience says, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die, right? And that the whole thing is designed to just overload your senses and the movement of the cart makes it feel incredibly real. Now, in full disclosure, I only know what this ride was like for the first two minutes. The reason? Well, because the ride was so real that I quickly became nauseous. So I kept telling myself, Mark, this isn't real, this isn't real, this isn't real. And everything in my body said, this is real, this is real, this is real. And so you know what I did? I closed my eyes for like four minutes through the entire ride. We were walking down the ramp and Savannah asked me, Dad, what did you think of that ride? Wasn't it amazing? And I said, well, I, I only know a few minutes of it. She says, why? You were there the whole time. I said, I had to close my eyes. <laughs> had a pretty nauseous feeling in my stomach. And as we walked off the ride, I remembered a sign that I had seen walking into the ride that said something like this, caution. This ride involves sights, sounds, and movements may cause dizziness or nausea. Pregnant women and wimpy men should be warned. <laughs> the sign didn't say that, that's how I felt. Like that's, I remembered that sign. Like it's just a cart, it's just a movie screen. And I was like about ready to hurl at the end. So there's a warning sign. And here's the thing, I didn't heed the warning. Revelation 8 and 9, church, is a warning. Singular thought for this message today is this. You need to heed the warning. These two chapters are another warning text that features a series of judgments. Ultimately, these judgments are designed to bring divine justice to the earth. But they're recorded here as a warning. God could just do this. He doesn't have to tell us about it in advance, but he tells us about it. Why? Because his heart is for people to heed the warning. So here's my encouragement to you. Don't walk away from this text. 
Don't look away from this text. Don't walk by the sign flippantly. That didn't apply to me. Mm. Don't minimize, don't rationalize this text. Take inventory as we consider the following. First, a sovereign plan. Secondly, the divine consequences. And third, a dire warning. A sovereign plan, divine consequences, and a dire warning. First, a sovereign plan. Verses one through five. Last week, we saw that chapter seven recounted a flashback where the sealing of God's people was revealed as the seals of judgment were opened. Two weeks ago, we looked at Revelation chapter six where the lamb began opening the seven seals, but if you'll remember, we only opened six seals. Now we come to the seventh seal. In chapters eight and nine, the seventh seal is opened, but within this seventh seal, there are seven trumpets. So it's stacking, six seals, seventh seal, seventh seal, seven trumpets. So it's going like this and then this, and then eventually you see it's gonna go like this and this. Like it keeps building, it's stacking. This, this revelation is, designed to be building on top of one another. We'll talk more about the trumpets in a moment, but before we learn about the seven trumpets, there's an important context as it relates to God's sovereign plan. Notice verse one, when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. There's silence in heaven. You can think of this as the silence before the storm. Notice here, as it relates to divine justice, there's no rushing, there's no hurrying. God has a plan and it's going to be worked out. You can think of this as the parallel between the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. There was a gap, there was silence. But take note very carefully that the silence of God doesn't mean that he's off his plan. Let me say that again. The silence of God doesn't mean he's off plan. Silence is a part of his plan. In verse two, we learn that the seven angels who are around the throne are given seven trumpets. Again, we'll come back to the trumpets in just a moment, but for now, just note that there are angels and these angels all have trumpets as this seventh seal is opened. Another angel appears in verse three. He came and stood at the altar. This is the same altar that in a previous chapter, chapter six, we heard the cries of the martyrs. That's chapter six, verses nine through 11, where they cried out, how long, O Lord, how long until you avenge our blood? This angel is in the same spot, but this time notice what he has. He came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. Golden censer, you know what a censer is? Those of you who've come from a Catholic or an Orthodox tradition may know exactly what that is. For those of you unfamiliar with that, think of it as a, a small golden, like a lamp that holds incense that can then be burned. It's the thing that the priest or the Pope or um, some 
religious official swings back and forth and, and fills the sanctuary with the smell of incense. That, that's what he's talking about here. That, that kind of instrument in the Old Testament, the censer was brought into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, and this cloud of incense, as the priest would swing it back and forth, would cover the mercy seat over top of the Ark of the Covenant as the priest, the high priest, was sprinkling the Ark of the Covenant seven times with blood for atonement for the people. So this has enormous biblical symbolism. And in the Old Testament, this incense and an acceptable sacrifice are linked together. So that is the background. Look what else we find here. In verse 4, or rather verse 3b, he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So intermingled with the smoke of this incense are the prayers of the saints. These prayers seem to be the cry for justice and a desire for God's name to be honored. These are the prayers of God's people when they see a broken world or they experience a broken world and they just think, God, won't you come and make this right? It's the cry of a mom or a dad who's leaning into the righteousness of their children and their adult children and they are limited in their ability and they lay in their beds at night weeping. God, would you reach the heart of my child? God, how much longer will they be tempted by wicked and sinful things? It's when you hear of a friend who has blown it morally and you feel the repercussions of a broken world or you attend a funeral or some moment where someone is just at a very painful moment in, in their life and you're just like, God, I want you to come back and to remove all the brokenness in the world. Does your heart ache for that church? These are the prayers of faithful believers who have persevered through trials and tribulations. Their brokenhearted prayers under the crushing weight of a world and living in a society marred by sin are offered to God as a sacrifice. These passionate laments of righteous people in an unrighteous world become offerings <laughs> that will become part of divine action. Note this. This golden censer is gonna change in a moment. But let me just identify how important it is to, to realize the sort of the smoke of this incense and the lamenting prayers of God's people. I, I trust that this might encourage you to pray differently this week, to realize that part of being a Christian in a broken world is lamenting the fact that the world is broken while still living in a broken world and lamenting your desire for justice or the sorrowful prayer when you see evil around you. Listen to me, Christian, that isn't a wasted prayer. I needed to be reminded of this this week. What were you doing at Wednesday, on Wednesday night from 5.30 to 10 o'clock p.m., or 5.30 to 9.30 to be very specific? Think what you were doing. What I was doing was on a Zoom call for that entire time with a subsection of our elders, men who I am so thankful for, lay elders and staff elders, and our task as a team is once a month to meet to try to deal with the most complicated, challenging issues in our congregation. And we spent 
the majority of that meeting wrestling through the brokenness that exists within all of our lives, but very specific situations, and trying to figure out what do we do to help people follow Jesus well. And I just gotta be honest with you, by the end of that meeting, I had to go for a walk around my neighborhood. I feel like I needed to take a sin detox bath. I was so tired of hearing about what the devil does in people's lives, so weary of hearing about the brokenness. There's a host of things that happen in our church that are amazing, but these elders, our privilege is to step into the deepest, darkest, most problematic arenas of life and say, God, what do we do to help people follow Jesus well? This text reminds me that all of those conversations and a walk around my neighborhood at 9.30 at night on a Wednesday is not wasted there's coming a day when Jesus is going to make everything right. Sin, those committee meetings, they're going to be no more. And all God's people said, amen, right? And I'm not just talking about general committee meetings. I mean, this kind of, there will be no committee meetings, I trust, but I'm a little off my manuscript here right now, but I love committee meetings. Don't get me wrong. Never, never mind. You know what I'm saying. The point is, is it's gonna be all good news all day long when Jesus serves as king. What happens next is stunning. It fits with what we learned last week about singing. Remember I suggested to you that singing is warfare? By the way, it's one of the things I had to do when I was walking around my neighborhood, I had to sing. I had to sing my heart into a place that it needed to be, but because of what I experienced and was talking about and working through, it just was so heavy. Well, according to verse five, look what happens. The angel took the censer. Remember, this is the, the worship instrument, right? He took the censer and he filled it with fire from the altar. And then look at what he does, church. He threw it on the earth. He threw it. He threw it. This object of worship, this thing that has incense in it, he filled it with fire and he threw it. What was to be used for worship became a divine missile. There were peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. This language is linked to the image of God coming down on Mount Sinai, same kind of language. The idea is the worship of God and his holiness has an amazing side when you're by the throne. It has a dark side when a divinely ordained censor is coming at you. God is holy. He has a plan for the defeat of sin in the world. He's provided the means of forgiveness through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Through Jesus, friend, you can be welcomed into the presence of a God who is holy, but it entirely depends on which side of God's holiness you are on. A censor of worship became a weapon of judgment. God's plan to eradicate sin from the world now is beginning to take shape and we need to be sure, you need to be sure that you're on the gracious side of his righteousness. Oh, let me plead with you. Heed the warning. Now we move to divine consequences in verses six through chapter nine. 
Beginning in chapter six all the way through nine, verse 19, we find an extended description of the judgments that followed. The previous judgments were connected to the opening of the seals. Remember the four horsemen? Now these judgments are connected to the seventh seal, which has seven trumpets. And verse six tells us that the second angel, verse six says rather, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Now, before we look at the specifics, I want to bring you into this text and remember that Revelation is meant to be a book that draws you in. So again, don't remain distant from this text. For example, trumpets are noteworthy. For those of you who grew up in church, you may remember the story of Jericho. Remember, God's people marched around the city of Jericho. They marched around the city for six days, and on the seventh day, they marched around the city seven times, and the text tells us in Joshua 6, seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark, and on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. Now, you may know, That in that Old Testament story, on the seventh day, they marched around this fortified city and they blew their trumpets. And that trumpet signified to the people of Israel that the walls are about to come down and it was a moment of anticipatory glory. But for the people in Jericho, the sound of the trumpet was a warning that all of the other cities that Israel had conquered with God's help is about to be their lot. So the trumpet isn't just the trumpet. The trumpet asks the question, which side of the trumpet are you on? Are you on the side of the trumpet that you hear the clarion call and you think, here we go? Or are you you on the other side of the trumpet where you hear it and think, oh no. I wanna bring you into this text. I want you to close your eyes with me. I want you to hear a trumpet. Listen. depends on where you are located. If you're one of the Israelites marching around the city, that trumpet sound is thrilling and victorious and glorious. If you're inside the city of Jericho and you've heard about everything that else has happened, that trumpet blast is frightening. It portends judgment. So when these trumpets sound, they sound regal and glorious when you're in the throne. But to be on the wrong side of God's righteousness, this is This is a terrifying moment. When the first trumpet sounds in verse seven, there's hail and fire that are mixed with blood. They rain upon the earth, resulting in great destruction. Take note here of the use of hail because these judgments seem to be parallel with the plagues of Egypt. Remember, an unrepentant Pharaoh and an unrepentant nation fell under the judgment of God and then he delivered his people. Same playbook. Second trumpet, verse eight, something it says, like a great mountain ravaged the sea. Remember the Nile River? Now we have land and sea. 
are both devastated by God's judgment. Look at the third trumpet, verse 10. The angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. Perhaps this is a a meteor or perhaps a nuclear missile. It's interesting that this star is given a name. The name of the star, verse 11, is Wormwood. This name has significant Old Testament background and it could mean that it contaminates water, becoming poisonous because wormwood indicates a bitter herb. In the Old Testament prophets, wormwood was what it meant to be on the wrong side of God's righteousness and they used wormwood for the bitterness of being under God's judgment. Verse 12, the fourth trumpet results in the darkening of the sun and the moon and the stars. Again, similar to the ninth plague in Egypt when darkness covered the land of Egypt for three days. So what's happening here with these trumpets and these judgments, we have the created world now under the wrath of God. The earth is destroyed as land and sea and rivers are affected. Imagine the moon and the stars are changed in ways that are frightening the location of where human beings live, the things that they trust in, like land and sea and water and sun and moon and stars, now are devastated. Imagine what that must be like. Actually, you'll have a little opportunity on Tuesday of this week. On Tuesday of this week, ironically, election day, between 4.10 a.m. and 7.50 a.m., there will be a blood moon lunar eclipse. Let me encourage you to get your Bible out and just look at the moon and be reminded there's a king who's coming. The final verse of chapter eight says this, then I looked and I heard an eagle crying out with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. In other words, there's more. Things are about to get worse. Chapter nine opens with the fifth trumpet. The fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth and he was given, notice he's given this key. This is, we believe, Satan. He's given the key, God gave him the key. So even Satan's activities here are not outside of the boundary of God's sovereignty. He's given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit The description here is frightening and it portends the release of satanic forces. Let's just read it, look at verse two. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from that shaft and from the smoke came locusts on the earth. They were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree but only those people who who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. To make this point even more evident, John narrows the focus in his vision 
on the locust in particular. What follows in verses seven through 11 is like a zoomed in camera shot with looking at these locusts. And the description of these locusts is not to indicate a connection between these locusts and military helicopters, but rather to make the point that these locusts are powerful and swift and intelligent and fierce and capable of inflicting intense mental and spiritual torment. Look at verse seven. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, he is called Apollyon. That name, Abaddon or Apollyon, are linked to destruction. This is either Satan himself or a high-ranking demon. Now, understand that all of these forces are unleashed on those who are not sealed, those who are not God's people. So just understand something for a moment. Think of this. These aren't forces that are released to try and attack God. These are forces that are released under the sovereign control of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and at the behest of Satan himself. And they are bent on destroying people who are on the wrong side of God. Satan is destroying his own people. This is the essence of evil, isn't it? Satan in this moment is not interested in rewarding a person for their allegiance. His end game is the destroyer of everything and everyone. He loves to hate, loves to deceive, loves to destroy. Friend, keep that in mind the next time that sin comes your way with a luscious attraction of what you really need. It's a bait and switch. Verse 12 offers another warning. There's still more to come. In verses 13 through 19, the sixth trumpet is blown, and this time a voice is heard from the four horns of the altar back to the heavenly scene, releasing even more judgment. And notice again that this is at the command of God. Look at verses 14 and 15. Saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. This time, instead of the image of locusts, though, rather it's an image of mounted troops. Verse 16, the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. So 20,000 times 10,000 is 200 million troops. Again, the picture is terrifying. Look at verse 17. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision. And those who rode them, they wore breastplates, the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. Fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. And by fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths, 
For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads. By means of them they wound. So so the image here is of painful and miserable judgment. Let me just pause. It's overwhelming, isn't it? It's frightening. There are dire There are dire consequences, friends, of being on the wrong side of God. Before you're tempted to look away, remember, this is a warning. You might be here and you're not yet a Christian and you might wonder, well, how how can this happen? How, How could God permit this? How could God sanction this? And to that, let me ask you a question. Is it possible that you don't really have a right understanding of God's holiness? Is it possible that you don't understand the full nature of his glory? Is it possible that we forget the true nature of God's holiness? With that question hanging in the air, there are two last verses that make our final point, and we find a dire warning. You might think that with all this judgment, with all of this poured out wrath, that people would repent of their sins and turn to Jesus. Surely, 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 with this overwhelming evidence of judgment, they would be humbled. Surely this overwhelming misery would cause them to break. No. And sadly, this is often not the case. You know, don't you, that sin has a hardening effect? You do it once and again and again and again and again and again, and before you know it, there's not only no guilt it actually feels normal. We get a clear sense of this in verse 20. Look at it. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze with stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders, their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. These are all the things that bring about the wrath of God. This is what it means to be the enemy of God. It's a dire warning, and the problem is is that so often human beings in the middle of all of our brokenness and our sinful rebellion, even with the overwhelming evidence that this is gonna turn out badly, we still keep marching our way towards personal destruction. And the miracle of the gospel is If you're a Christian, God intervened in your death march. God rescued you. He pulled you out of that line and said, what are you doing? 
He awakened your soul to help you realize the tragedy of your ways, that you realized all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Christian, if that is your story, and as a Christian it is, you ought to thank God's mercy because it's only because of his divine intervention that you even know that you needed a savior. So why is this helpful? This text demonstrates to us yet again the amazing nature of God's grace offered to us based upon the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. I think that much of our experience in heaven will be gratitude, not just for rescuing us from our sins, but rescuing us from being on the wrong side of a glory that's gonna blow our minds. I think there may be emotions that we'll feel in heaven like this. That was close. This text can be a moment of gratitude for Christians to consider what God saved you from. Because Jesus didn't just save you from your sins, Christian. He saved you from being on the wrong side of God's holiness. Your problem isn't just sin. Your problem is God in your sin. And that's what this text makes clear. Here's the second thing. This text reminds us of the despicable, horrific effects of sin. We need to be reminded of that. Because over time and with sort of what I'll call cultural inoculation, we can begin to minimize how disgusting sin really is and its effects. One of the reasons that I'm thankful to be an elder and a pastor is I get a front row seat on the amazing stories of transformation and I also get a front row seat on the amazing destruction of sin and that front row seat is a good reminder of how consequential sin is, and it helps my righteousness. So that, that long meeting on Wednesday night was emotionally and spiritually exhausting, but it caused me to wake up the next morning and say, God, help me to be a godly man. This passage helps us to see the diabolical nature of temptation. It shows us the horrors of what sin can do. I wish that I had a little, you know, remember those scratch and sniff stickers? Remember those? I wish I had a scratch and sniff sticker of marital infidelity. I wish I had a scratch and sniff sticker for rampant idolatry. For those of you that that's some major blowout in your life is in the past, praise God for that, but can I remind you the urgency that you felt when you came to your senses, don't let that urgency die, brother or sister. And for those of you who have kind of dipped your toe in the little areas of flirtatious behavior or sinful conduct in the last week or find yourself trolling around places that you shouldn't be trolling around or hanging around spots that you know you shouldn't be. Hey, listen, wake up, heed the warning. This text is meant to remind you, Christian, that junk is what Jesus died for. That was used to be you, that's not you anymore. Walk away, follow Jesus, endure, make it to the end. 
Finally, this invitation from this text is for all of us to consider what side we're on today. Be part of God's family? Oh man, you should rejoice. You should feel the weightiness of this text and say, oh Jesus, where would I be without you? Where would I be without you? Are you marching your way to Zion? Or are you here today and are you resisting the divine call upon your life? You're not yet a Christian, you're here, you're, in, you're interested in revelation, I'm so glad you are. Are you hiding inside the little wall of your own rebellion? It may be that God by his mercy is using Revelation 8 and 9 to wake you up and invite you and call you to become a follower of Jesus today. Because you need to think, we all need to think, about what side of the trumpet we're on. church, heed the warning. Come to Jesus. Don't wait. He is so worthy and he is so righteous and so welcoming. Come to him today if you don't know him. And Christian, remember, our king is going to blow that trumpet and he's coming back. Jesus, fill us right now, we pray, with a beautiful, healthy fear of you so that sin becomes so abhorrent that we just are repulsed by a temptation in this next week, that you would provide the means by which for us to see and savor what it means to be in Christ, to be on the right side of that trumpet, and even now, draw people, we pray, who don't know you to Christ today. Today, let, their, let, let this be the day when you mercifully open their eyes and that people would cross the line from darkness to light, from an enemy of God to a child of God. Oh, let that be today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.